You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I hope you are well. Today we continue our series on German explorer and scientist extraordinaire Alexander von Humboldt. Two notes for today. First, I have put a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see a route of Humboldt's journeys. And second, I want to apologize for the slow pace of the Humboldt episodes. I will be honest, this series has been difficult. There are two real challenges. The first is stripping out the elements of Humboldt's life to tell the story that I want to tell. It's just not that easy. Some of the challenges just separated the science part of his world from that of the traveler and explorer. I mean, I can't totally separate them, but figuring out what to include is not always that simple. But the biggest challenge of all is the massive amount of original source material that I have to comb through. As I talked about last time, Humboldt wrote a lot, and then he wrote some more, and then he wrote some more. I can honestly say it's overwhelming at times. His account of his travels is an amazing source for me but I have to dig through so much to find the stuff that really matters to me. Ten pages on the art and history and cultural significance of native tattoos is sort of fun to read about, but it doesn't do much for our story. Or five pages on mosquitoes, or the vegetation of a region, or native legends and tales, or the history of Jesuit missionaries. It goes on and on. And let's not forget, Humboldt is literally interested in everything. Everything. All of it means that I have to go through a lot, so writing the scripts is just a slower process than normal. So thank you for your patience. So that is it for notes. Let us continue with part two in our story on Alexander von Humboldt. Last time we left Humboldt as he arrived in Cumana, Venezuela, having just landed in the New World, along with his friend and colleague, botanist Aime Bonplant. The arrival in South America was an exhilarating moment for Humboldt. He had always dreamed of this land, including places such as the Amazon jungle and the Andes mountains. To be in this exotic world made him absolutely giddy. Fun story, upon landing, it was customary for a dignitary to present himself to the local governor. Instead, Humboldt visited the village of some local Guayaquiria Indians and promptly asked them a million questions and made all sorts of observations about their homes and life. Then he went to see the local officials. That is so Humboldt. Thrilled to be seen and talking to simple people rather than hobnobbing with the local lord. Anyhow, in Kumana, Humboldt was warmly welcomed by the governor, a man who was a keen follower of science. He rented a home to serve as a local base, one that was well suited for making astronomical observations. The first few weeks for Humboldt and Bumplant were overwhelming. Everywhere they went, there was something amazing and new and eye opening. 
There were blue crayfish, red blossoms on palm trees, monkeys and butterflies of all sorts, 30-foot-long snakes. Bonpland wrote that they would, quote, go mad if the wonders don't stop, end quote. Trees, plants, fish, animals, it was amazing. There was so much, Humboldt struggled to organize everything. But he and Bonpland were in heaven. Every day was a new adventure. On one of their excursions into the mountains, he visited a Capuchin mission in Caripe. There he was led into a cave where he became the first European to study the oil bird, which is a native to the region. By the way, I want to stress that Humboldt was not simply looking to find new stuff to show to the world, although that sort of thing was great. He was developing ideas and concepts about nature, what he called, quote, an impression of the whole, end quote. And it wasn't just about plants and animals, it was everything. It was the people and their customs and their culture. It was about learning local history. It was collecting geological samples. It was about astronomical observations, including a meteor shower that went on for hours one night. Everything was fair game, as I said, an impression of the whole. By November of 1799, Humboldt and Bonpont had collected more than 4,000 samples. This included 1,600 plants, 600 of which were new to science. Also, Humboldt had done 60 sketches. And these were not simple drawings, but often incredibly detailed and realistic. Now, a few comments about Humboldt and his experiences in Cumana. First, the city had been involved in two recent earthquakes, including one in 1797 that had left 40,000 people dead and much of the city leveled. And on November 4th, the city experienced another quake. The quake freaked everyone out, but Humboldt remained calm. He grabbed his instruments and went to work. He timed the aftershocks, took electricity measurements, and noted how the quake rippled from north to south. It was a unique experience, and as author Andrea Wolf noted in her book, The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World, it gave Humboldt an insight into nature. In many ways, most people saw the Earth as a static thing. Mountains, islands, continents, they didn't move. Yet earthquakes demonstrated that the Earth could, most definitely, move. This insight will help inform Humboldt's theory that the continents were once connected and had broken apart and drifted away from each other. While others had suggested this before, it is Humboldt who will really understand and explain the ramifications of such a revolutionary concept. Second thing about Humboldt at this time was his exposure to slavery. He saw slave ships arrive in the city, packed with people. Human beings were hauled into the market and paraded and auctioned off like cattle. Buyers pride opened the mouths of young men and women to assess their age and health. He was revolted by this, and it would make him a lifelong abolitionist. And the third thing regarding Humboldt was that for the first time in many years, he was healthy. The heat had been good for him, and more than anything, being out doing what he dreamed of doing had done wonders for him physically and mentally. So, in mid-November, Humboldt and Bonplant packed up their specimens and gear and notebooks and hopped on a 30-foot trading boat, the destination Caracas, about 200 miles, or 325 kilometers, to the west. A mestizo servant, Jose de la Cruz, came with them. In Caracas, Humboldt again rented a home, which would serve as a base for the coming months. Now, Humboldt would go on excursions just like he had done at Cumana. This included climbing Silla, the nearby mountain. But the big thing that garnered Humboldt's attention was the story heard from the local priests about the Casiquiare, a supposed waterway 1,000 miles to the south that connected the Orinoco and Amazon rivers. All scientific understanding of the day said the Orinoco and Amazon basins would be separated by a watershed, so the idea that the two rivers were connected went against all evidence. So to go exploring, to discover something such as this, was just too enticing of an idea for Humboldt and soon he was preparing for a journey up the Orinoco in search of the Casiquiare. 
The plan was to travel approximately 200 miles across the Llanos, a vast tropical grassland plain, and reach the mission of San Fernando de Apure, which is on the River Apure, a tributary of the Orinoco. There, they would get boats and provisions and paddle to the Orinoco and then into the unknown. The Orinoco was a great mystery, hundreds of years old. It had first been spotted by Europeans when Christopher Columbus sighted its mouth in 1498 on his third voyage. The river had been investigated on and off for centuries. The most famous expedition to sail up the Orinoco was led by Sir Walter Raleigh when he went looking for El Dorado, the fabled city of gold. Before departing on his expedition, Humboldt sent 43 letters to friends and colleagues back in Europe, asking them to get his story and research published in papers. He wanted to let the world know what he was doing and what he had found, a way to spur interest in his venture and raise funds for continuing it. Humboldt, by the way, often claimed he didn't care what people thought about him, but in reality, he was like most of us. He longed for recognition and accolades, and he was not above self-promoting his work when he could do so. Humboldt's expedition departed Caracas on February 7, 1800. The team included himself, Bonplant, their servant, José de la Cruz, plus a guide and men to manage the pack animals. Also, there was a stray dog, a mastiff, that was taken on as a pet. Humboldt left behind most of his luggage and his collections. Now, the journey first went west and began with a tour through the valleys of Aragua, which consists of the colony's wealthy agricultural regions. Humboldt and his team went through the mountains and valleys where they saw rows of corn, sugarcane, indigo, and other cash crops. There were farmhouses and villages and lakes covered with flocks of herons, flamingos, and ducks. After about three weeks, Humboldt arrived at Lake Valencia. This is a unique lake. It is really big, but it has no outflow. Rivers and streams run into it, but nothing runs out of it. Instead, evaporation is the primary way the water levels are regulated. And it was when Humboldt measured and examined the lake levels that he became suspicious. They appeared to be dropping. Why, he wondered. For the answer, he avoided speaking to colonial officials and instead went straight to the local people. From them, he tied the dropping of the water levels to the mass cultivation of the land surrounding the lake. One culprit was obvious, the diverting of streams that fed the lake to instead irrigate farmlands. But it was more than that. There was also the clearing of the surrounding forests. This did two things. First, it cleared the lands of the forest undergrowth, roots, brushwood, and so forth. This made the soil incapable of water retention. And second, with the great forest that surrounded the lake gone, the lake was exposed to more sunlight, which meant increased evaporation. These factors, and others, were dramatically altering the way water was interacting with the earth. By doing this, Humboldt was thus taking note of human-induced climate change, saying, quote, when forests are destroyed, as they are everywhere in America by European planters, with an imprudent precipitation, the springs are entirely dried up or become less abundant. The beds of the rivers, remaining dry during a part of the year, are converted into torrents whenever great rains fall on the heights. The sward and moss disappearing with the brushwood from the sides of the mountains, the waters falling in rain are no longer impeded in their course. And instead of slowly augmenting the levels of the river by progressive filtrations, they furrow down the heavy showers the sides of the hills, bear down the loosened soil, and form these sudden inundations that devastated the country. End quote. These ideas Humboldt was articulating were not new, but he was proposing a world on a much grander scale. He was seeing deforestation in a wider context. He explained how trees and forests were fundamental to the functions of the ecosystem and climate, and he could see the devastating effects of deforestation if unchecked. This is fascinating because people just didn't grasp this big picture at this time, 
and it is Humboldt developing these ideas by observing, measuring, examining, and questioning. Also, another important thing that was evolving in Humboldt's mind was the relationship of humanity to the universe. Humboldt started to understand that humanity was not the center of everything. This idea was radical for the time. Even many Enlightenment thinkers, such as Descartes and Bacon, viewed the world as being created for humanity. God had made the earth for man to use. The earth was wild and unruly. It was good to bring order to such things. In many ways, it was science, through technology, invention, and testing, that helped bring such order. This sort of idea was very much the mindset of the day. Wild nature, the forests, swamps, whatever, was bad. Think of the fairy tales with dark and scary forests. Now, maybe these places were not really bad, but not necessarily good. Man needed to harness these rogue lands. The fields and the forests needed to be cleared to make them better, to make them productive. Homes and farms and crops were humanity improving upon fields and forests. Another thing I want to mention at this time was Humboldt's attitude toward religion and God. It's somewhat unique in that he simply doesn't talk about the subjects. Many scientists and thinkers go to great lengths to argue, pro or con, about the existence and influence of God in the world. Humboldt just doesn't say anything. In reality, he was not a religious man, and he was skeptical about organized religion. But he doesn't reject religion or God, he just doesn't talk about it, which is somewhat unique. Anyhow, it is in these early months in South America that Humboldt starts to form some of his most groundbreaking theories. And it's not always an aha moment or an epiphany, but instead it's a gradual realization as he observes and tests and gathers. From Lake Valencia, Humboldt and his team headed into the Llanos. This vast tropical grassland plain was as big as France. This was a brutal journey under a relentless sun and across a dusty and baked earth. The men ended up covered in a crust as the temperatures rose to as high as 50 degrees Celsius or 122 Fahrenheit. There was little tree cover to stave off the heat, so they often traveled at night. Humboldt was enthralled by the vastness and the solitude of the Llanos. The team would have two deadly encounters while crossing the plains. On one occasion, they found a murky water hole. As water was not common, the men decided to clean off. Once they jumped into the water, they realized there were alligators on the opposite bank. They had to run for their lives. On another occasion, at a small village, Humboldt was shown some pools of water containing electric eels. Humboldt had done hundreds of experiments surrounding electricity, so he was absolutely giddy at finding these. He wanted to examine them. The problem? Touching one could kill a man. The eels were in these puddles of water buried in the mud and not easily netted. Thus, the locals suggested driving some wild horses into the water to turn them up. The plan worked, the horses freaking out the eels, which in turn freaked out and stung the horses. Some of the horses fell over and drowned. Humboldt and Bonplant grabbed some of the weakened eels and proceeded to conduct a variety of tests on them for several hours. It was dangerous stuff, and Humboldt was lucky to walk away with some painful shocks, but nothing more deadly. By the end of March, Humboldt reached the Capuchin Mission at San Fernando de Apure on the River Apure. The local town was a hub of trade, which included hides, cacao, cotton, and indigo. The plan was to take a canoe to the confluence of the River Apure and the Orinoco, and then go south and cross the Atures and Maypures rapids. Few men had gone beyond these rapids due to their difficulty. From there, they would find the Casiquiare, the supposed link between the Orinoco and Amazon rivers. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Alexander von Humboldt was ready to head into the heart of the South American wilderness. Going forward, the expedition would travel light, lean, and efficiently. There was a single 40-foot-long, 3-foot-wide boat, or 12 by 1 meters. There was a small covering on the back of the boat, as well as a sail. In addition to Humboldt and Bonplant, there was their servant, Jose de la Cruz, plus a man named Nicolas Soto, the brother-in-law of the provincial governor. Soto had joined the expedition to explore and was a welcome addition due to his wonderful sense of humor and easy manner. There were also four native rowers and a pilot. The expedition's dog, who was never named, was still with the team. They had provisions for four weeks, including eggs, plantains, cassava roots, fruit, and chickens. The team planned on catching fish, finding turtle eggs, and hunting game. Plus, there was alcohol to barter with the indigenous tribes. The voyage began on March 30th. The temperature was a roasty 34 degrees Celsius or 93 degrees Fahrenheit. The voyage up the Apuro River was an eye-opening one for Humboldt. He had never seen or imagined what a true wilderness had in store for him. Hundreds of crocodiles lined the riverbanks. Bonplant measured a dead one at more than 22 feet, or nearly 7 meters. There were flamingos, jaguars, tapirs, and capybaras, the latter the largest rodents in the world. Monkeys and birds crowded the treetops, while the river was filled with massive boa constrictors, river dolphins, and fish of a million sizes and colors. It was a world that Humboldt had only dreamed about, and he absolutely loved it. For him, he was seeing nature undisturbed by humans, and what he found was a well-oiled, bloody machine, each creature striving to survive. Even the plants fought for dominance, climbing vines strangling huge trees in order to reach the sunlight. All of this was helping Humboldt come up with the basic concept of the food chain, the understanding, again, of how nature was incredibly and delicately interwoven. The expedition spent five days on the Apure and then ten more on the Orinoco. The Orinoco was impressive, sometimes so wide Humboldt couldn't see the other side. They measured it to be two and a half miles wide at one point, or four kilometers. Humboldt called it, quote, one of the most majestic rivers of the New World, end quote. The men would row 12 hours a day against the current, and while Humboldt was wild by it all, there were many dangers as well. When the men bathed, they had to do so in turns so they could keep an eye out for crocodiles. 
and at night they slept on the shore in hammocks, a man on watch and several fires going at all times to keep away predators, especially the jaguars. Piranhas were another threat any time the men had to venture into the water. By the way, the men would not spend every night in hammocks, especially in these early days. There were plantations, villages, and missions to stop at, which sometimes offered more traditional shelter. Anyhow, other dangers the men encountered included the time that Humboldt came upon a jaguar while out going through the woods. He stayed calm and remembered the instructions of his native guides. Don't wave your arms, don't shout, don't make sudden movements, walk slowly. Thankfully, the big cat was more interested in spying on some capybaras and left our explorer alone. Another time Humboldt almost died was when he touched a paralyzing poison called Chiare, which was used by the local tribes in blowguns. Humboldt was fascinated by the stuff which paralyzes the diaphragm and muscles. Lucky he didn't get any into an open cut or insect bite. That could have killed him. Yet another near disaster happened when the boat's sail caught a huge wind, tipping it on its side and nearly capsizing it. Water poured into the canoe and the expedition's many supplies, specimens, and gear were at risk of being swept away on the river. Only Bonplant didn't panic. The Frenchman helped get the boat right side up, saying to Humboldt, quote, Don't worry, my friend. We're going to be safe. End quote. And he was right. Bonplant kept things from floating away and led the men in bailing out the canoe. He then began to rescue all the gear, even hauling many items to the shore. There they were able to dry out their plants and journals. In the end, they only lost a single book. Bonplant, by the way, was turning out to be an excellent field botanist. He was not afraid of hardships, didn't complain, and was a great source of calm and cheer. So while there were many dangers lurking on the Orinoco, the river offered a constant annoyance. Mosquitoes. They seemed to curse every expedition in every climate, except for Antarctica and the Arctic. Here in the jungles of South America, nothing seemed to help the men from these pesky flies. Protective clothing, smoke, the waving of arms, nothing helped. They were left covered in itchy, swollen welts. Of it, Humboldt wrote, quote, It is nearly impossible to write during daylight. One cannot hold the quill still because the poison in these insects is so painful. All of our work happened by the fire in part of an Indian hut where no sunlight came in and you had to crawl in on your stomach. There one almost suffocates from the smoke but suffers less from mosquitoes, End quote. Despite all of this, Humboldt loved it all. Seeing nature so raw and barely touched by humanity was exhilarating and illuminating. And I want to note that it wasn't just the rivers and trees and animals that thrilled Humboldt. It was the people. He loved to interact with the natives when he got the chance. As with nature, he observed and studied. And he learned from them, something so many people failed to do. His book is filled with dozens, maybe hundreds of pages, talking about the native people of the region. It's an ethnologist and anthropologist's dream, and what Humboldt recorded is some of the best and most accurate representations of the native people of this area. A story that I love is that in one village, the natives actually got annoyed with Humboldt because he kept asking them, through an interpreter, so many questions. The dude just wouldn't shut up. But these people fascinated him. He was amazed at how they'd adapted to their environment. In the end, Humboldt saw beauty in the languages, history, and customs and cultures of the natives. He didn't see them as barbarians, they were part of a greater interwoven world. And I want to note that Humboldt's views and interactions with the native peoples of Latin America will make him a beloved figure. It was said that Humboldt was the first European to actually see the people of Latin America. That's an extraordinary thing when you think about it, but we will talk more about that later in the series. The expedition would continue up the Orinoco and in mid-April near the Atures and Mapure Rapids. These are about 500 miles or 800 kilometers south of Caracas. 
These rapids are about 35 miles apart, and they cut channels through a small mountain chain. They are named after two tribes that used to live in the area. Hardly anyone went past these rapids, and there were all sorts of wild tales about what lay beyond them, such as stories of men with the heads of dogs. Before entering the rapids, the expedition came to a village called Peruma. Here, their guide and the owner of their canoe refused to go any further. He didn't know the waters beyond the rapids, and he didn't want to risk his boat. Luckily, there was a mission in the village, and the priest sold Humboldt a new canoe. One of the priests, Father Zaya, agreed to act as a guide for the explorers. Father Zaya had a mission beyond the rapids. The new canoe was similar to the other one, roughly 40 feet long and 3 feet wide, and made from a single tree. By the way, I want to share a little history with you at this time. The Spanish missions were run by various Catholic orders, such as the Capuchins, but the big story regarding the missionaries surrounds the Jesuits. Beginning with the arrival of the Spanish in the New World, the Jesuits had made deep inroads in much of South and Central America. They were well-organized and well-funded. They set up quality schools, and they strived to connect with the indigenous peoples. All of this made the Jesuit order powerful due to the influence that they had with the native people as well as the European populace. And the Jesuits were not above using their power, and that is where the problem arose among some of the kingdoms of Europe. The Jesuits were just too powerful, and they meddled too often in politics. Humboldt tells one story of a missionary organizing the native Indians and, essentially, leading them on some military campaigns against other indigenous peoples. Colonial officials did not like this sort of thing. They liked the natives to be divided and compliant. In the end, the Jesuits were just too meddlesome and too powerful and too rich, and thus they were booted out of Spanish and Portuguese territories. This included all the missions visited by Humboldt and his company. I mentioned the too rich aspect because Humboldt says there were all sorts of tales of lost Jesuit treasures. These stories generally said that when the Jesuits departed their missions, they were not always able to take all their valuables. Thus, there was treasures hidden away in caves or buried in the mountains, that sort of thing. Anyhow, that is it for the Jesuits. Up the Orinoco we continue. The expedition entered the area of the rapids on April 15th. The Atures rapids were first. They were an extraordinary sight, with roaring and churning waters going on for many miles. Of it, Humboldt said these were, quote, majestic scenes of nature, end quote. Eight natives hauled the boat across the rapids, often using ropes to drag it against the current. Other times they lifted the boat and carried it to get over the rocks and cataracts. It would take two days for the canoe and men to cross the Atures rapids. They would reach the mission at the Maypuras rapids, which was operated by Father Zea, the expedition's guide. There, they rested for three days before conducting another crossing over this second set of rapids. Father Zeo would continue with the expedition as a guide. Father Zeo would tell Humboldt stories of the tribes that used to occupy this region and how the caves of the area were filled with the bones and mummies of their dead. Humboldt was not able to investigate the caves at this time, but on the return journey, he would do so. And so, further south, the expedition went. The river narrowed and the jungle grew thicker and thicker. All the while, Humboldt and Bonplant collected and measured stuff. The men's stock of food was dwindling, and they ate what nature offered, including fish, turtle eggs, and fruit. The water grew thick and murky and had to be filtered through a linen cloth. As a note, Humboldt and Bonplant would be the first to identify and later introduce the Brazilian nut to Europe. Humboldt and his team would have cut quite the picture as they paddled up the Orinoco into the unknown. In addition to all of the men, the boat had become home to eight monkeys, seven parrots, a toucan, a macaw, and many other birds. And of course, there was the big mastiff. The heat and humidity of this region was brutal and destructive. Specimens just disintegrated in the humidity. 
and insects were another problem as they ate the paper, destroying writings and specimens they had collected. Humboldt estimated that he lost up to a third of the things he and Bonpland collected due to the humidity and bugs. The expedition continued south on the Orinoco for three weeks before heading down a network of tributaries, including the Rio Atabapo. Now, what is happening is a little confusing, so let me explain. History tends to simplify things, and if you read stuff on Humboldt, most of it says that he rode up the Orinoco and found the Casaquiare, the link to the Orinoco and Amazon rivers. And that is true, but it's cutting out a lot of stuff in between. Humboldt knew that the Casaquiare was connected to a tributary on the Rio Negro. The Rio Negro is a massive river, the largest tributary of the Amazon River. It was on a tributary of the Rio Negro, also called the Negro, which is confusing. Anyhow, it was known that if you went down the Rio Atabapo from the Orinoco, the Rio Negro was only a four-mile journey over land. So Humboldt decided to travel to this and then sail down the Negro to where the Casaquiare flowed into it. I know that sounds a little confusing, but I hope it makes sense. Anyhow, the company followed the Rio Atabapo and reached the mission at Javida, where they hired natives to help portage the canoe to the Rio Negro. Thus, Humboldt and his companions would spend five days in the village while the portage was conducted. The men would depart Javida on May 5th and reach the Rio Negro and their canoe three days later. Humboldt and Bonplant continued to collect samples, including meteorological and astronomical data, and take page after page of notes. Now, the upper Rio Negro was under the influence of the Spanish, while the lower was the domain of Portugal. This made for all sorts of confusing maps. Rivers and villages and landmarks would have Spanish names, Portuguese names, and even native names. Thankfully, Humboldt and his company just needed to go south towards the Casaquiare. And so down the river the canoe went, eventually reaching the fort at San Carlos, the southernmost reach of any Spanish military installation on the river. The fort had 17 soldiers and some missionaries. Humboldt reported that only four of the soldiers' muskets could fire due to the extreme humidity. The company, by the way, was not far from the equator, so you can imagine the heat. It was brutal. The men would spend three nights at the fort, then depart on May 10th. The canoe would head down the river for about 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, where they reached the mission of San Francisco Solano at the mouth of the Casaquiare. The mission was a simple house with a priest and a pair of soldiers, but from the mission it was into the Casaquiare. They entered the river the next day. Now, the reality of the situation was that Humboldt and his team knew where both ends of the river were, but they needed to trace its route and fix its exact course. They would spend 10 days going through and mapping the waterway and eventually reconnect with the Orinoco River, proving that this was, without question, the waterway that connected the Amazon and Orinoco rivers. Now, a few notes about this. First, Humboldt would not continue down the Negro, which would take him to the Amazon River. They would continue on the Orinoco. The Amazon is in Brazil, which was a colony of Portugal. In fact, Portuguese authorities had gotten word of Humboldt's activities and issued an arrest warrant for him if he ventured too far south. Second, this route, it turns out, was not unknown. It had been documented years before, but not with the thoroughness that Humboldt had done. He would return with a detailed map of this complex system of rivers. This was a major find for him. And third, what Humboldt found here was really quite unique. The Orinoco River flows into the Caribbean Sea to the north. The Amazon Basin, which consists of a million different rivers, including the Negro, flows east and empties into the Atlantic Ocean. So how were they actually connected? Well, the answer is called bifurcation. This is when a single water stream separates into two or more separate streams, called distributaries, which then continue downstream. Sometimes these streams hook back up, 
but on rare occasions, they twist and turn and go in completely different directions, just like this instance. In this case, one flow goes to the Orinoco, while the other goes to the Rio Negro, and then on to the Amazon. Humboldt and his company found out where this split took place. It is the world's largest river of the kind that links two major river systems. Humboldt and his team reached the Orinoco River on May 21st. They were 18 miles away from the mission at Esmeralda. Their plan was to travel back down the Orinoco and then follow it east to Angosura, a journey of 750 miles. Humboldt and his team had spent 75 days on the various rivers of South America, and it had been a grueling and exhausting journey. But Humboldt saw the immense possibilities of what he had mapped, saying the land was, quote, a country nine or ten times larger than Spain and enriched with the most varied products, is navigable in every direction by the natural canal of the Casiquiare and the bifurcation of the rivers, end quote. There was one casualty on the Casiquiare. The expedition's big dog, the Mastiff, who had been with them since Caracas, was taken by jaguars. Humboldt departed Esmeralda on May 23rd. He considered following the Orinoco to its source, but in all honesty, he and his men were too tired and weak. Plus, it was said the natives were hostile in their region. The expedition retraced their steps down the Orinoco, including recrossing the Atures in Maypure Rapids. Humboldt and Bonplant's traveling companion, Nicholas Sota, would part ways with the company once the expedition turned towards the east. He would return to Caracas. And so the men headed east toward Angosura, reaching the city of 6,000 in July of 1800. Here, bad food, exhaustion, and months of hardships finally caught up with the men, and they came down with typhus. Humboldt recovered rather quickly, but Bonplant got so bad he fell into a coma. Humboldt was distraught at the idea of losing his friend. For two weeks, Bonplant lingered on the edge of survival before finally recovering. After that, he battled dysentery. The men would have to spend a month at Angostura recovering. At Angostura, Humboldt would leave the Orinoco and head north into the eastern Llanos, the great plains of the region. As always, Humboldt was taking in everything. He talks about the region's history, including the stories of the legendary El Dorado, the city of gold. Humboldt and Bonplant would reach Cumana at the end of August 1800. There they settled in to recover, and they began to sort through their collections. The Orinoco expedition was over. So, what exactly had Alexander von Humboldt done? Well, over the course of four months, he had traveled more than 1,700 miles, or 2,750 kilometers, through a large and wild country. He established the existence and exact location of the Casiquiare Canal, a natural waterway between the Orinoco and Amazon rivers. Along the way, he had collected 12,000 plant, animal, and insect specimens, hundreds unknown to science. He had documented the worlds of several native tribes and made thousands of astronomical, geographical, and meteorological readings. There were hundreds of sketches and drawings, and the maps made were the finest and most detailed ever created of the region. The exact locations and heights of various mountains, rivers, and streams were now known. And perhaps most important, this journey helped Humboldt continue to develop his thoughts on nature, the environment, and the beauty and delicate and interwoven elements of the world. At Lake Valencia, he had seen how the cutting of fields and forests had irrevocably altered the landscape in so many ways. On the Orinoco and other tropical rivers, he saw the way animals operated in a food chain. It was a raw view of nature that he had never imagined. It was all part of Humboldt developing what he called an impression of the whole. And so that is where we will leave things for today. Next time, it will be on to Cuba, but more importantly, back to South America for another life-changing journey into the Andes Mountains. 
I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. In keeping with the theme of this episode, I will recommend Nature Nerds in the Pulse of the Planet. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror. You can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.